by chance? Probably got it turned Yeah, it's probably, yeah. It's all right. They turned it down for me too, Mike. Um, if you have your Bibles, please open them to Joel chapter 1. If you do not have your Bibles, it'll be behind me on the screen. And we're going to start with verse 13. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. A solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. May God bless the reading of his word. So we're continuing on through Joel, and as of today, we're a quarter of the way through it, which is exciting, I think. Um, and I know, it's a, it's, again, it's been a lot of judgment. That's what the prophets do. They judge. <laughs> uh, they bring, actually, God judges and the prophets just speak about it. Um, so we've got to keep on going. We've got to see, okay, what is it that God is trying to teach us through these verses? So going back to verse 13. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. At this point, Joel refocuses on the priests. Previously he had focused on them in verse 9. Now he calls them to wear sackcloth and to lament. To wear sackcloth along with lamenting is a common theme in the Old Testament. Sackcloth was uncomfortable to wear. And being black, it showed others that one was in a state of grief. It is in this state that they should remain, wailing in their sorrow. Yet, why are they to wail? And what is the reason for their grief and for their sorrow? The answer is that the grain and the drink offering are withheld from the house of the Lord. Because of the locusts, the invading armies... And even the drought, there is not enough for the sacrifices to be made. And thus the normal sacrifices and elements of worship are cut off from the people. And for this, the priests should rightly mourn. He then tells the priests to set aside a day of fast. Fasting is a form of worship to use, especially in times of great need. Um, We can think of David when his first child with Bathsheba was destined to die. He fasted in grief, unwilling to eat for seven days to show the Lord his repentant heart. So it is the kind of repentance which is being called upon by Joel. They are to all cry out to the Lord that he would deliver them from their calamity. Now verse 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. 
Joel now turns to a major theme within his prophetic writings, and that is the day of the Lord. Like Amos, he does not describe the day of the Lord as something marvelously good for the people of Israel and Judah. Instead, he says, alas, and the destruction from the Almighty, it comes. In fact, the way Joel phrases it here can even be translated as, the destruction from the destructor comes. As we remember, when Amos describes the day of the Lord, he criticized the people for hoping that it would come. They believed that the day of the Lord would be something that would benefit them. But Amos told them that they were the ones who would feel the effects of such a day. So it is with Joel. Joel recognizes the people are in a desperate state. And because of this, he is warning them of the coming judgment, which is going to come in full. Now verse 16. It is not the food, is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels and under the clo- the seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. Now Joel turns to the situation at hand. Food and agriculture has been a theme throughout this chapter. And as we have seen, um, the locusts, they devoured everything. The enemies, they've plundered everything. And the drought had dried everything up. Now Joel is causing them to reflect even more deeply on the significance of these events. What does it mean for the food to be cut off? What does it mean for joy and gladness to be taken away from the house of God? The answer lies in the previous verse that the day of the Lord is coming upon the people. If the judgment of famine, of locusts, and enemies has come upon the people, then what else is left for them but the judgment from the day of the Lord? Thus Joel recognizes this, and he asks these questions in order that the people would recognize their plight and turn away from it, repent. He further shows the seriousness of their situation by considering the seed, It shrivels under the clods. The seeds which are planted are unable to produce a harvest. The storehouses are desolate because there is no grain placed within them. And the granaries, they're torn down, indicating that they are becoming um, to a state of disrepair. Thus the people are constantly reminded of their situation. The food is gone. Their joy is gone. Their blessings are scattered in the wind. Now verse 18. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. So far, Joel has focused on humans and agriculture. Now he focuses on the animals, the livestock. Even they are suffering under this state of affairs. They groan and they're perplexed. They are unable to feed on the land because the land has been made desolate. So it is nothing in the land can escape the judgment which is falling on the land. Whether it is the land itself, the people, or even the livestock, all feel the weight of judgment. Now verses 19 and 20. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water Brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Joel now takes the case himself. He calls out personally to the Lord. 
He calls out to Yahweh because of what is occurring. Joel knows that none of these events would take place apart from the hand of God. All of them, the locusts, the enemies, the drought, are all found within the law for disobedience and faithlessness. So it is Joel goes directly to God in prayer and intercession. Because the Lord has sent the fire, Joel goes to the Lord knowing that he is the only one who can extinguish it. Yet it is not only Joel who calls out to the Lord. It is also the beasts of the field. They are suffering just as the earth is and just as the people are. And so they pant for the Lord. They call out to him because of the lack of water and the lack of food. Ultimately, all of this reminds us of two things. The first is that the Lord has brought these calamities upon the people. Whether it is one calamity, such as an enemy army, and Joel is using locust, drought, and fire as symbolism for that one enemy, or if each of these are literally occurring in the land. Ultimately, it is the Lord's hand which brings them all about. And it will only be from His hand that relief comes. So the main point of these verses are to show the people why they are to lament and also to show them why they are in need of repentance. These judgments do not come upon a people who are faithful. Rather, they come upon a disobedient people. Thus, Joel calls the people to turn from the wrath, being an example for the people by crying out to the Lord during this time of trouble. So what are some application points? Well, the prophets, they're full of condemnation. We saw it a great deal in Amos as he prophesied against the people. And now we're seeing it again in Joel. There's a difference between Joel and Amos, we see, um, as Amos specified what their transgressions were. He prophesied against their social abuses as well as their religious abuse. Joel, however, has not specified. We have not encountered in Joel any specific abuse or failures. This should not cause us to believe that the people were not worthy of judgment. The simple truth is that they would not be experiencing what it is that they are experiencing apart from God's judgment on them for being unfaithful. Thus, we are sure of this, that God is punishing the people through these various plagues in response to their faithlessness. Now, we could harp on their unfaithfulness, but instead we're going to consider the fact that God is the one who is in control of these things. He is the one who has brought about the locusts. He is the one who has brought about the enemy armies, which have become a plague on the land. And he has even brought the drought. What is it that we see in these things? We see judgment, first of all. These things are all elements of judgments for disobedience according to the law. The prophets understood this. They see the warning signs before them as clear evidence that God is not for the people, but against them because of their disobedience. This is the reason why Joel can so easily tell the people to repent, to lament, and to call out to God for salvation, because he knows that the judgments are coming from him to begin with. Many in our modern time have an issue with this understanding of justice and further the wrath of God. There are those who do not believe that God would do anything wrathful or anything which would be considered judgment. Yet the truth is, God is a righteous judge. He is the rightful king. And being king, it is in his hands to delineate true and complete justice. 
Because of this, most individuals do not rejoice over the justice of God because far too often they do not understand the justice of God. They rightly know that God is God of love. However, they then assume that God being love means that he does not enact justice or righteousness or wrath. How could this be? If God is love, then he must be completely accepting of everyone and everything, right? But think of the consequences of such a thought. If it is true that God must love everything and everyone completely, then the God we serve is a terrible, terrible monster. For if he loves sin and darkness as much as righteousness and light. In other words, he would, not, he would love not just the sinner, but the actual sin if this were the case. And I think we can all begin to see that the love of God is truly great. But to say that God loves sin or evil the way he loves good, I mean, that's absurd. Let me flesh this out a bit. Let's imagine two groups of individuals. The first group are Christians and they seek righteousness. They seek truth and they seek love. They seek the Lord's will, desiring to honor him with their lives day in and day out. They are imperfect But they trust in his grace. And they seek to share the gospel and the love of God wherever they go. One would say that this pleases God. They are seeking to fulfill the commandments of Christ. To love the Lord their God with all their hearts, their minds, their souls, their strength. And to love their neighbor as themselves. This is good. God loves these acts as a pleasant aroma. Like a sacrifice to him, as the New Testament says. Now let's consider another group of people. Actually, two different groups. The first is the Aztecs. They were a fierce people who would make human sacrifices to their gods. They had no love for their enemies and sought to destroy and humiliate them. Now the second group we could consider, a more modern group, so to speak, would be the Nazi regime in Germany. And these individuals were devoted to domination and in some, even more cases, eradication. Of others. Do we really want to say that God loves what the Nazis or the Aztecs did? I would hope we would say no, absolutely not. Why do we say that? Because God is a moral God, and such immorality goes completely against who He is. We have clear examples here of atrocities which go against God's very nature. And because of that, God cannot love these atrocities, and therefore God cannot love all things equally. When individuals then cause such atrocities, and when they seek immorality rather than morality, we can be sure that God is a just God, and we can be sure he does not pers- that he does pursue righteousness. And that may very well be by his wrath. Does that mean that those who commit such atrocities cannot be forgiven? No. But that would require them to turn in repentance and faith in Christ. And only then will they find the judgment which they deserved placed on the shoulders of Christ. Apart from Christ, however, they will certainly face the judgment of God. And we should not be sad about this, but rejoice in God's judgment, justice. Now that leads directly to how God's justice plays out. And as we see in today's text, God can use nature against the unrighteous. He can cause a drought and he can bring locusts. He can cause devastation upon a people who do not turn from their destructive tendencies. 
Not only does he use nature, but he also uses other humans. The armies, which are bringing the devastation against the people of God, are being used by God. God is sovereign over foreign nations as well as over his covenantal people. And it's not as though those who fall um, outside of his sovereignty. This is not the case. God is God and sovereign over each and every individual. And it is a good thing too. Because if he wasn't, then they could live however they want. But even they are held accountable for their atrocities, if atrocities they do in fact do. So what is it that we consider? We consider the reality that the prophets do not shy away from God's sovereignty, nor do they shy away from his judgments. The reason for this is that they knew God. They knew that he is good, that he is just, that he is righteous, that he is moral, that he has made covenants and the people have broken them. And therefore, being a truthful God, he will fulfill his end of the bargain which is blessings for faithfulness and judgment for unfaithfulness. Through the ages, humanity as a whole has been breakers of covenants with God. Thus God will continue to judge humanity against his morality. But that does not mean that judgment must be all that there is. Instead, let us encourage each other and others to turn in repentance and faith. For only then will the ultimate judgment be we see be cast down through faith in Christ Jesus. Apart from him, there is no hope for salvation. But thanks be to God that such hope exists. And thanks be to God that we can cry out to him to save us from himself. He has promised to save us if we should turn, so turn and seek, repent, and know the love of God through faith in Christ. Now, the second thing that came to mind after reading this is that in Joel today, we encountered an interesting tidbit. And that was how the livestock were calling out to God because of what was occurring. John Calvin, uh, the reformer in the 14th century, maybe it was the 15th century, depends on how you look at it, um, he reflects on this by recognizing how foolish the people were, even compared to the livestock. The livestock recognized their need and they were already calling out to God. Yet the people had not even begun to do so. If there is an application from this section of Joel, I think of one that is, can't be any more humorous or serious as being better than livestock. Humorous because we should be better than livestock as it is. Serious because we often aren't. Whether it is those inside or outside of the church, we see individuals who act in ways which show that livestock have a better understanding than we do. For those outside of the church, we find individuals who live their lives irrespective of what matters. They do not take on the serious philosophical and moral problems which they encounter on a daily basis without realizing it. They do not question their existence. They remain sedated in their own way, doing as they please, with no regard whatsoever in the darkness which they live. Whereas even the cattle recognize their need for God. Most people remain in ignorance, unwilling to even entertain the idea of a sovereign God and the ramifications for what it means for there to be a God 
versus no God. Meanwhile, for those who are inside, as we saw last week, we could be no better. We can be just as silly as ancient Israel. While our own foundations collapse around us, we can just as easily be blind to the demise of our own religion within the broader society. We can be just as easily swayed to take our blessings and run without considering them fully, or even the God who grants them. Likewise, we can be oblivious when it comes to our own sorrows. We can forget completely about the God who has given us salvation and life. We can forget about the great God who grants us grace and mercy, even his own son, Jesus Christ, in his great love. Thus, when sorrows come, we sit in the mire of them. We put on our sackcloth, unwilling to look at the great love which we possess through Christ, even in our sorrows, not allowing ourselves healing which comes by his grace. In other words, God wants our sorrows to be cast upon him. Our greatest defender in times of sorrow is God. He is with us if we are in Christ. He hears our laments and even laments with us. Yet far too often, we do not go to God and cry out to him. All too often, we can neglect the very God who has given us everything through his son, Jesus Christ. So what can we do? We can be better than livestock. We can go to our God. We can consider our own personal sorrows and know that God is with us even in these times. Likewise, we can turn toward God when it comes to the broader society. In our own strength, we cannot overcome the darkness which we find therein. Yet as Mike said this morning, in the strength of Christ, we can overcome any darkness which is thrown at us. Knowing our God gives us great hope just as it did with Joel. Joel was able to cry out to God, knowing that he was able to save the people. He could see the devastation, and in it Joel recognized that the only hand that could provide salvation was the hand of God. We should be no less sure. For we know our God, and in knowing our God, we are able to recognize his great love, and his great mercy, and his great grace. This life, It will be full of hard times. In our hard times, let us ask God to grant us strength to turn toward Him, casting our cares upon His great shoulders, knowing that He desires them and will help us carry on. We are not alone here. Our God, whom we once fought against, is now our greatest defender. It is by His hand We have received his ultimate salvation, and it will be by his hand all other salvation in this life comes. Go to him then, knowing that he is with us in Christ, and hears us when we call out to him in this life. And so it is we consider this gospel of Jesus. It is in the gospel we find our ability to call out to God and to know that he will hear us in our distress. Likewise, we know that it is through the gospel we have found our great salvation, a salvation which saves us from the very hand of God's wrath. In his sovereignty, he could crush us. But by his grace and his mercy, 
he has redeemed us unto himself into love. Still, this gospel, it has a beginning, and that beginning is God himself. He was before all else was. He is the creator of all things, and humanity is the pinnacle of creation as he made us in his own image. Because God is a God of love, reason, personhood, knows, can be known, can show Hasid his eternal covenantal love with us, and has morality, we can as well. It is here we find all human worth, all human dignity, and by which the doctrine of the sanctity of human life stands, or also falls. Yet God is also able to choose, and because of this, so are we. We were given the choice to follow God in obedience into life, or follow sin and disobedience into death. In the end, we chose to sin and die, and we have made that choice ever since. Because of this, our relationships between God, ourselves, each other, and the world, they're all broken. And because of our sin, we accrue a greater moral guilt before our God every day. Not just a feeling of being guilty, but true guilt before a righteous judge. God could have left us in this silence and darkness of our death forever. Instead, he spoke a great word to us and sent a great light to illuminate the darkness. And this word, this light, was his own son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, he lived, he died, and he rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is through his life, death, and resurrection that we are healed of our wounds. It is by him we are justified before God. We can never be perfect in this life except in this. And that is our justification before God is perfected because it is not through our own means but through Jesus Christ and his blood. All of our debts are erased. And we can now have victory through the Spirit over sin in our lives and will have it over death. All that is required of us is obedience in two things. The first is repentance. We are not to be like ancient Israel. Instead, we are to turn away from our sin and turn toward God. This means that we are to live lifestyles which are congruent to God. We are not to live any way we desire, but live according to the will of God, walking in step with the Spirit, according to the Scriptures, individually and corporately, in love. The second is faith in Christ. We are to recognize our own dependence upon the Son of God, that it is His righteousness which makes us clean. We are not justified, made right with God by anything our hands can accomplish. Instead, we must fall on the grace of our God through faith in Christ alone for our salvation. For those who remain disobedient, there is only judgment. None can boast righteousness, which can grasp the glory of God. All sin is worthy of judgment, and we are all sinners of a great degree. To stand before God with only our own effort in our hands is to realize we are standing before a completely holy and righteous judge with stains on all of our good deeds. Because of this, if we stand before God without Christ, we stand in condemnation alone. Yet, for those who are obedient, there is no longer judgment, nor is there condemnation, but life. We have peace with God forever. We become co-heirs of an eternal kingdom where we will reign with our God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit forever. And it is because of God, because of His redemption, and His great love for us, that this is all made possible by his strength. As we continue forward in Joel, let us continue to remember the sovereignty, 
and the justice of our God. Let us remember that we can and should cry out to the Lord, knowing that he will hear us and will redeem us. He is our God, who has given us great love through his Son, and it will be by his hand alone that we find our salvation. So call upon the Lord in times of sorrow and grief, and cast your cares upon the shoulders of our God, because he has given us all good things through his Son, Jesus Christ. And he has given us the great love for us. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the book of Joel, for the prophet who once spoke and still speaks to us today about your righteousness, about your justice, but also how it points to us and how it points to Jesus Christ, the one who takes on your righteousness, and gives it to us. And so, Lord, we ask that we would continue to seek out your will. We ask that you would continue to guide our steps ever into your glory, individually and corporately. And we ask that you would continue to lead us. We thank you, Lord, for the unbelievable grace you have given to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And it is in him that we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn together.